this episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care. My name is Carla and this is The Plodcast. Hey everybody and welcome back to the podcast. We'll be taking a journey through some of Victoria's greatest war stories from the police veterans who live them and those who support them. Today I'll be joined by Mark Thomas, a police veteran who was a ways into their policing career before he was injured with post-traumatic stress. He'd been to scenes of suicides, drug overdoses and deaths, but it was just one scene in 2003 that would change him forever. It was this experience at his lowest point that led him to create the Code 9 Foundation an homage to the radio code police use for police requiring urgent assistance. So usually what I like to do with the start of these things is get to know people's motivations towards why they started the job in the first place. So I'm kind of curious to know why you kind of decided to do this. Well, for me, it was the chance to help people, basically. So I was a mechanic before my policing days and also... You, know, you become a mechanic, you're qualified, and that's it. Whereas joining Victoria Police had uh, a multitude of different reasons why. One, primarily to help people when they need it, and also there's so many different areas, so many different things you can do. Yeah, and I've heard that a lot. I think the primary reason behind a lot of this is people want to help other people. I've never really heard any other veteran give another answer. And, and that's, and I guess we'll probably talk about this more in depth later on, but... I am a firm believer that once you're blue, you're always blue. Oh, totally. Whether you're serving or not. And uh, I don't don't like the word X, because I think that's a... and we don't use it either. ...intrinsically negative Mm. word. Uh, Veteran, happy with veteran. Um, Mm. Former, and I've heard some people don't like the word former, but I'll either use former or veteran. and, and that's that's the case because we are we are different people. This job changes us in many ways, some good, some bad. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, once you're blue, you are always blue. So I know you were in the job for for seven years before you're involved in a pretty big incident that kind of changed everything for you. But before we kind of go into that, can you tell me what were things like in the job beforehand? Oh, they're great. Yeah. And for the most part, it's been great since on one level, uh, which again we'll talk about. But yeah, policing was everything I, I, I thought it would be. Uh, it was you know, doing great work, helping people, which is great in their time and need. Um, it, it's, that, it's that feeling when people don't know what to do when they're confronted with um, whatever incident they're being confronted with. And you can come in and you can help them out and you can make their day better and you can make kids smile and mm. you can recover people's property that's been stolen and you mm. can take drugs off the street and so all of those things are really good positive things to do and you can when people's are having their worst day you've got the ability to improve that mm. and that that's that's what what made me first you know six and a half seven years was like it was just constantly fun mm. um certainly some you know, some good times in there, certainly some bad times, but overall my, uh, my early journey was, was positive, it was great. Mm. And surely perspective changing as well. I remember we were talking about this a while ago, but the idea of turning someone's 
bad day, not necessarily turning it around, but keeping in perspective on something that might have happened to them. Yep. Um, like that lady that had the, um, it was a car crash. Car crash. Right? Yeah. And for her, it's the worst day ever. But for you, who's been on the other side of it, you said, well, you could be dead. So things could be worse. <laughs> and she realized that. After yeah. That. And like you said, in a nice way. Yeah. But... <laughs> Yeah, she said there was that perspective of, oh, okay, it's a car, we can fix a car, or you can mm. get a new one, big mm-hmm. deal. Yeah. Was there any way that you could have prepared yourself pre-incident? You know, obviously no one can predict the future, no one knows what's going to happen, but could there have been anything that would have prepared you for the events leading up to, to 2003? It's a really good question, and I've asked it of myself a lot of times, and I've discussed it with clinicians and, and other people, um, first responders at length. And I, I thought I put myself in a pretty good position to be able to not be overly affected by the trauma scenes that we go to. And look, up until the uh, 8th of April, 2003, that was largely successful. Like I've been to a number of suicides, a number of fatals, drug overdoses, like general duties members as mm. we go to trauma incidents because that's that's our job, that's what we do. And previous to that day, oh, I had never, never felt impacted by the sights or the smells or the, the, the noises or whatever. It just didn't, mm. it didn't register in a negative sense, mm-hmm. put it that way. You had seen things like that before. So I just wonder what it was about this particular event that got you. And that is the question that still remains unanswered. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm at peace with it. I'm at peace with the fact that I'll never know what was it about that day. Was it the actual sight of that person? I hadn't been to that type of suicide before. Mm. So whether it was that or mm. some other people have suggested that your bucket was full and that tipped you over. Yeah. I kind of argue against that a little bit though because I just, I didn't, there was no other incident that I'd gone to that I was replaying in in my head or I thought I'm struggling with this and even when I look back now with uh, a stack more knowledge and experience about the mental health world I still maintain prior to that day there was there was there's no signpost sticking out there saying dude you're in a bit of trouble here yeah like trauma ahead yeah yeah and I know the last time we spoke you had told me that you could remember this scene and like forensic detail um i remember that was the word that you use and it's it's a creepy it's a creepy way to have to remember it you know so forensically but for and obviously i know this story but for the people that that don't know about this it wouldn't be good but it would be interesting to hear yeah what happened on this particular day that was so changing for you well i was in elfington working the divvy van with a mate of mine who i'm still good mates with yeah and called to this uh, suicide, we got there very quickly because the indications were that he may have been still alive or it may have just happened, so he hasn't quite completed suicide at that stage. So we got there, um, went inside, um, looked around the one bedroom unit and then located the very clear deceased person. And I remember very clearly, and I can, I can still remember that, Mm. I felt it, physically felt it in my chest, the sight. And, you know, I, I looked at the deceased for, you know, Google tells me the blink of an eye is 0.33 of a second. And that's mm-hmm. as quick as I can look one way and look away, that's how long mm. 
And then uh, I left the unit, and then subsequent to that, uh, you know, I've taken that scene apart many times with clinicians uh, under treatment, and also with with my mate Lummy, mm. and we figured we were in that unit for six to eight seconds, and I looked at the seas for 0.33 of a second. Yet, I can, I, I still remember the colours, the the sides, the pots and pans in the sink, the wine glasses in the display shelf, mm. what the deceased was wearing, the carpet, the rug on the floor, the two-seat, one-seater couch, so everything about it I remember. And mm. oh, that's coming up 20 years ago now, and I can describe that scene and the deceased as good as, if not better, than my own home that I've been in for a decade. I've gone through day books and diaries where I've gone to other deceased persons, fatal accidents, etc. don't remember them. I was there because I've got all these notes, mm. but I don't necessarily remember anything about them. Mm. So it's just something about that day, and as I said, I'm at peace with the fact that I'll never, yeah. I'm pretty confident I'll never actually 100% know why, mm. why that uh, uh, hurt me so bad. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the impact that that had, I know it obviously had a lasting long-term impact on you, but if we talk in terms of physical and mental impact. We'll start with the physical. What were the ramifications? Well, that feeling in the chest, that, that initial, it was like a soft punch in the chest, but like right across. Mm-hmm. Then physically I wasn't too bad. Like, like that was about it until um, anxiety really started mm-hmm. coming into the um, fray later on, in, um, later on in life. And when I say later on in life, it's only months later really when yeah. I backtrack and I know what an anxiety attack is now I realised I was having them yeah, yeah. pretty quickly thereafter but certainly mentally like you know for the next 10 years basically that incident that day started chipping away at my resilience mm. and then just short of a decade later I, I basically had no resilience left and no resilience no self-worth no Mm. Um, no want, no want to live really. It, it's uh, disassociation and um, the whole, the whole gamut of, yeah. of, of mental health yeah. conditions. But I remember you said um, the last time we spoke, that entire experience had led to what you described as a catastrophic loss of of self. Yeah. And like this is a fairly loaded question, but what does it feel like to lose who you are? It's it's hard to describe. Yeah, no, I bet it, it is. It's uh, everything you think that is right is just not. It's just not there. Like I remember the night before uh, I landed in hospital. And spoiler alert: I landed in hospital. <laughs> um, I remember sitting between my kids' beds and I'm looking at them, and they were, I think, three and five at the time, and I felt nothing for them. Mm. No emotion whatsoever. So I just completely disassociated from mm-hmm. pretty much everyone. And I remember my head saying that, yeah, they're my kids, I love them. You know, yeah, of course. If, if they need yeah. me hard tomorrow, they can have it. Got no problem with that. But as far as any sort of emotional, physical feeling towards them, yeah, mm. I just completely disassociated. Mm. Uh, it, yeah, physical-wise, well, the mental and physical kind of tie into each other. So during that time, I started to notice that when I was in crowds, my body would heat up, which I now know that's my first sign of anxiety. My oh, body heats up. Okay. So I was having those and just getting exceedingly uncomfortable, even to the point where 
um, around at a friend's place, I was sitting in between two people, two friends that I've known for a long time, mm. incredibly uncomfortable. Mm. I like just, claustrophobic. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, then I, 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 well, I still do run a bit, but, you know, go to work, go for a run of them every morning, and then I didn't want to do that anymore, just lost all interest, and, mm. yeah, depression kicking right in at that stage. Did you feel in a way you almost had to rebuild? It's, it's kind of like after people go through big physical traumas and they have to relearn how to walk. Did you kind of have to relearn how to be yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And when I get out of hospital, um, Foo Fighters uh, song come on the radio as I was driving back up here, up to Melbourne, and um, basically learning to live again. Yeah. I, mean, I think the songs live. Mm. But the, the, the words are learning to live again. And, and basically that's what I had to do. And mm. you know, anyone who goes through these significant events, you, you've basically got to learn to live again because I become, I love the dark. I much prefer the dark. Mm. But I had the, basically in hospital, I slept with the nightlight on. I, the uh. door had to be open. Uh, yeah, and even when I got home, the, you know, my bedside light was on. I just, I could not be in the dark. It was just terrifying. Mm. For for what reason I don't know. It's just the brain, yeah, brain going a little bit sideways. <laughs> uh, I couldn't be in crowds at all. I become very, uh, very afraid of jumping on the trains. Like that was a big barrier. Mm. Um, I, and I don't know why. It's just uh, so. Basically, one day when I was still off work, I went to the local train station and loaded up with music and. Uh, jumped on a train and went one or two stops and got off and trying to calm the anxiety attack that I was having and then that'll do for today and mm. and basically just learning to get on the train again because you know what, what I say is you know the world doesn't have to get used to me mm. I have to get used to the world mm. so all these things that are that are highly triggering just had to in a, in a safe way and in a controlled way just Mm. stick your toes back in the water and slowly learn to yeah. get back in. And, and it's one thing that I was very fortunate for, very fortunate for, if that's the right words. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was diagnosed PTSD, I've gone, ah, okay. Mm. That makes a whole lot of sense. Because a lot of things are, so that's why I'm doing this and not doing this. Okay, now that's starting to make sense. Mm. So I accepted that straight away. And then got diagnosed with anxiety. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. So I accepted that straight away. But for some reason, when they said, you know, um, diagnosed with depression as well, that took a lot to get my head around. I'm not too sure why. And I don't know whether I was self-stigmatizing mm. or it just, it was just murky. Because anxiety and PTSD to me was clear. Okay. Well, and biologically, they make sense. Anxiety yeah. is quite literally built into us for the specific purpose of, you know, not being eaten by a lion. Yeah. Um, like we are built to be moderately anxious people because we have to be. Yeah. Like for me, I worked out pretty early on. I was, there's probably five or six different types of moods I'd wake up in and I could count on most of them one way or another. But depression was just, it was like nearly my kryptonite. It was like, how do I, how do I fight out of this? How do I, when I wake up on a real crap day, and even now, like I'm 10 years into this post-diagnosis journey, and if I wake up anxious, I can counter that. If I wake up 
if I feel like I'm starting to disassociate, I can counter that. I can do all these things, but even now I know when a wave of depression comes in, and even though I know it's really good for me to get out of bed and go for a run or get on the bike or do something, I really, really still struggle to do it. Mm. It's just it's it's just a murky world, and I still got a lot of a lot of work to do to try and counter that as best I can. I wanted to, and I know we kind of spoiled this before, um, but when you were hospitalised, I only asked this because um, I was actually listening to another podcast the other day about how the major events in our lives are kind of like scaffolding for us. Your experience in hospital that first time, did you feel like that would have been like a, a pivotal moment for you? Huge moments. Yeah, yeah some really big moments in hospital. Just, well, being... Uh, being in a mental health clinic where you are not allowed to leave mm. is, first of all, a very, very confronting experience. Then you realise you go into your room and you, uh, there's no hanging points. The, everything's sloped. Everything slopes. <laughs> the towel racks just collapse if you put any weight on them. Anti-suffocation bed, bed sheets. It, um. it's, it's confronting hugely confronting when you are in a already very damaged uh, space but I still look back at my hospital experience as a very positive event Mm. Uh, I did bottom out in hospital and I, I, I didn't think I could go any lower than what I actually was for the first few days but it was a Friday night and it, I felt myself slipping either, even further and I, I tried some mindfulness because I'd just heard about mindfulness for the first time that day. Uh. A huge fail, epic proportions <laughs> fail. But at least we give it a go. At least you tried. Uh, and, and it was at that point I, I slipped down to what I say was the bottom um, for me. And it was, it's one of the most powerful realizations, if not the most powerful realization I've ever had is I know why people suicide mm-hmm. because it is just not sustainable to live with that amount of mental pain. Yeah, it's I've actually heard um, I've heard suicide described as the final symptom of depression. Yeah. I think it's just the final thing that takes you out. I said a couple of weeks ago in a um, interview too that people don't suicide to kill themselves; they suicide to escape the pain. Yeah. It's kind of contradictory a little bit. They don't suicide to kill themselves, but they are. But they're doing it to escape the pain, and I understand why they do that. Yeah. Now, granted, yeah. at that stage, I was very early in my journey, and I was unmedicated, and, you know, mm. I wanted to see how far I could go without medication. Mm-hmm. And it was after about two years that I first tried meds. Mm. Um but yeah, that, that particular night, I've, I've not forgotten that feeling. I actually remind myself of it. It's a bit, it's a good little motivator mm. to keep doing the, the healthy thing so I don't go back to those levels because that was, like I haven't been able to come up with words to adequately describe the level of pain mm. that that, um, that feels like. And mm. I've spoken to other people and it's nearly like we could have our you know, own little secret club people (laughs) who actually know what it's like to go to that level and 
you know, I, I, I feel sorry for people yeah. um, that they take that final step. It's awfully, awfully tragic yeah. uh, who complete suicide. For you, and this kind of brings me on to the topic of recovery and coming back to the job, what was that kind of period of recovery like? I know roughly how long it took, but for you, was it quite um, gradual? Did you get back into the job quite quickly? Are there things maybe, you know, you could have done slower or faster or retrospectively? No, I was pretty happy. Yeah. Pretty happy with the recovery. So I had about seven weeks off. Uh, and you mentioned the WorkSafe ads before to yeah. get back to work. I become really obsessed with the, with the work cover ad where the bloke broke his arm and they got him back doing, like he worked as a, um, some, in somewhere in a factory and they got him into the office to do office work with his arm in a sling or something like that. And I just become very clear, I have to get back to work. So yeah. I had about seven weeks off, probably come back maybe mm-hmm. three or four weeks a bit quick. But I had the um, the bonus that my manager at the time and who I'm still under now, uh, my senior sergeant, Mickey Bennett, was just superb in his, um, well, care for me as I returned to work. So I went back on Tuesday and Thursday for four hours and like Mick just drip fed me work, very simple, easy stuff. There's no zero pressure whatsoever. And then it was just a, after a few weeks, okay, I've settled into that. Let's, let's increase by an hour each day. Mm-hmm. And then once I sort of felt good with that, so I, a good indication if I was going home and not sleeping straight away, then I'm starting to, Get better. Get better. Yeah. Uh, and this is in a work sense. And then, you know, we went to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday for four hours. And then just that slow increase in hours. So it took two and a half years all up mm. to get back to full-time work. But but again, I was exceptionally lucky to have a mm. leader like me to sit over the top of me and make sure that I am capable of increasing hours. And mm. he just drip fit me a bit more work and... But it's funny because that should be the norm. You know, you should Absolutely should be. Yeah. Like when you say lucky, it shouldn't have been luck. It should have just been that that's how it is instead yeah. of throwing people back into work because we yeah. are obsessed with the idea of a career yeah. and having a career tied to your sense of worth. Yeah. yeah. And again, this is a society as a whole issue is that we need to treat mental health injuries and illnesses with a lot more respect and a lot more care mm-hmm. uh, and a lot more understanding. Yeah. Well, and I think I already know the answer to this, but do you think in the time that that happened, if there had have been a better framework around mental health and about the outcomes of post-traumatic stress, you might have experienced a different outcome? Or probably not. In 2003? Yeah. Yeah, hard to say. It's too much well, of a hypothetical. Yeah. Thing. I mean, 2003... Um, like we, we, we still had, you know, the welfare unit. We still had yeah, totally. Unit. But 2022, we've come a really long oh, way. Incredible amount of distance. Yeah. Especially, you know, I look back to when Mr. Ashton was our chief commissioner and, you know, he took six or seven weeks off because he was feeling he was burning out. Mm. Like just the level of leadership in that was, you know, that's elite leadership. That's, that's the Absolutely. big boss saying... I need to take time out here because I'm starting to struggle. Mm. I'm certainly not suggesting Mr. Patton just take off six or seven no. weeks. But, <laughs> but but at that stage, you know, not long after the mental health review, that's really backing 
backing the words up. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's just such a critical thing that we normalise, you know, we are talking about this earlier. You know, like if I'm sitting at home and I wake up with a flu, mm. I'm going to take the day off because I'm not mm-hmm. good enough to come to work. Mm-hmm. But if I wake up and I, I did it, I had one day last year where I woke up and I was just going through the motions and I've gone, what are you doing, dude? You yeah. are no good. So I went back exactly. to bed yeah. and I messaged me. I said, mate, I'm no good today. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, won't be in. And the reply, the standard reply, no worries, mate, give us a bell if you need anything, come back. Mm-hmm. But it's that normalisation that it's okay. We're in a profession where people, whether you are, well, particularly when you're off duty, you get introduced as a copper and then mm-hmm. people want to hear it. So then you find yourself talking about work after hours, which is nothing wrong with that. Mm. But you've just got to keep it in check and make sure that it doesn't become your identity because mm. when people leave Victoria Police through, you know, retired, ill health, retired, resigned, whatever, like it strips that identity. Mm. I kind of just wanted to know, now that you're in a, a better headspace with all of this, um, have there been certain things that have helped you with your mental health? I know you mentioned mindfulness before. Yeah, mindfulness has been really good. Uh, it's all new lessons, basically, learning. Um, mm. I first heard about it in hospital and then just followed it up, basically, and um, did some yoga with uh, Blind Tiger Yoga, which is a military-based um, oh, bloke cool. started, but it's no longer operating now, unfortunately. But learned some really good skills with that. And the, the, the there's a great misconception about uh, meditation. The West has butchered the... Jesus oh, yeah. out of it. Um, you know, and that's what I like to say is, you know, apparently females have got to go down the beach with a soft sunset and a flowing dress and, mm-hmm. you know, take these, no, just oh, stop, just wrong. <laughs> and then there's blokes sitting in corners in suits in a lotus position, wrong, just stop it. Mm. I mean, look, if that works for you, great. Yeah. But, you know, just a bit more education around it because it is very peaceful it does calm you like my anger i had obviously anger issues mm. you know, anyone who's got ptsd it's pretty much a byproduct mm. of it uh but certainly the the mindfulness and the meditation over the years has uh, been a great great help for that i haven't drank since i was in hospital so i just cut alcohol out like i got a pretty healthy addictive personality so mm. and that was one thing that i i can easily control that that's a very simple risk factor that i can remove mm-hmm. so that's that was easy mm. wife so you... loves it she's got a designated driver for life so <laughs> no problems there to improve my diet just cut out a lot of sugar mm. like i'm no i'm not sitting there eating you know boiled chicken and cauliflower for breakfast lunch and tea no you have to also live <laughs> i still like i met a bloke last night and you know had a burger and some chips and things yeah. like that, that's fine. Still, yeah. As you said, still got a life, but I just cleaned it up a fair bit, just to exercise too, getting outside, hmm. things like that. So it's like the one of the key sort of messages, I suppose, it's not that hard. Hmm. Just doing, you know, a couple of improvements over different aspects of your life, they all add up. So I'm keen to talk about Code 9. So when you, when you came to that, was it you that you came up with that? Yeah, me, uh, Rob and Ben, two now police veterans. Yeah. 
so we, we just had a discussion over a name and it just seemed to be the one to use mm. basically yeah and that and it kind of encapsulates everything that code nine is about really yeah yeah, yeah. and for anyone that doesn't know what code nine is can you just run us through yeah so backstory is when i was sitting in hospital i was I just felt incredibly alone. I'm thinking no one could possibly know what I'm going through here, which is obviously complete and utter rubbish, mm. but my brain wasn't in the space to understand that that was in fact rubbish. So I thought when I get out, I'll start a support group for coppers. So if someone's newly diagnosed or struggling, then we can go to them and say, hey mate, know mm. what you're going through because we've all been through the same thing and are currently going through it. So it's just that feeling of not being alone. Mm-hmm. And then that that grew, um, grew and grew, and then Rob come along one day, and Rob's got his assistance dog Jimmy through Assistance Dogs Australia. Jimmy's just a super dog, mm. um, and these are yeah elite trained assistance yeah. dogs. They can go everywhere, do everything. So that's a great company too. Oh yeah, awesome. So yeah. we um, like we used to have group meets pre COVID. We'll start them up again shortly, hopefully. And the first night Rob and Jimmy come along, we just spent the three hours just hammering them with questions because yeah. it's just so fascinating. Yeah. And then down the track, the three of us were just having a, a, a chit-chat, me, Rob and Ben, and we just said, well, what do you reckon we register as a charity and raise money for assistance dogs? Mm. And so we did it. So three knuckle coppers and <laughs> all mentally injured, we managed, yeah. managed to get it done. But then... Um, so, and then we expanded. So, yeah, we still raise funds for assistance dogs. We're sponsored two, um, another one maybe later this year, early next year. It depends with the ADA litters when yeah. they come um, come out, etc. But so we, we just sort of expanded a little bit too. So, like we found out there was a police veteran that had been eating like two-minute noodles for a week. Well, we can't have this. So we, we teed up on you know, and paid for you know, a couple of weeks worth of meals. Mm. And then... You know, another member was going into hospital and um, wife was at home with two young kids. Well, she doesn't need to be cooking. Let's take that. And it was mm. something really simple for us to do. Mm. But it was having such a huge effect on the mm. other side that the partner at home didn't have to cook. Yeah. Just taking that out of the equation. Yeah, it's so is, small. But it's, it's, yeah. And that's really easy for us to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I don't know, I think we're somewhere in between 900 and 1,000 meals delivered to members and their partners now. Awesome. Um, sending members away that are, you know, hurting, they just need a break, so we'll just send them away. Where do you want to go? So we had one member and his wife had a weekend in Queenscliff on us. Cool. Um, another one went to Bright. Another one's in Adelaide, so they're going to take a couple of days on the end on our dollar. Um, just get away. Mm. Just Go for a weekend away, relax, chill out, go for a walk along the beach or in the mountains or something. So that's pretty cool. Mm. Um, such yeah, small things we can be doing. Small things we yeah. can be doing that have such a large effect. Like an, another veteran, he was having a house inspection, like anxiety off the charts and the weeds are right out of control because he just hasn't got the, the anxiety's got that much control over him. He can't even get outside to do the gardening. So mm. right, we'll take care of this. So... Mm. Yeah, we just got someone around to give the joint a big clean up, mm-hmm. just take that anxiety out. And a partner again, one of the partners who, uh, police veteran husband in hospital, she never does the gardening. Cool, mm. leave it to us. Like to us as a foundation, it's really important that 
we're not just sitting there giving out the, the thoughts and prayers or mm-hmm. you know a Facebook post and things like that. So we want to be so something that's basically measurable, mm. actual physical stuff. And you know, like Young Veterans Organisation for that look after ADF. Like one of their hashtags I use a lot is boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's what we want to do. Yeah. You know, like we had another uh, a serving member who was living in his car. Yeah, mate, that's not happening. So squared him away with a couple of weeks of emergency accommodation just to get him off the street. Like it just mm. it just shouldn't be happening. So I mean, we, we've we we we're doing those things as routine. Um, we've got a couple of other projects coming up. Mm. Really excited. Can't really talk about it at the moment. Yeah. All secret, not, not secret squirrel yeah. stuff, but just. Yeah. Um, still, in, one's very advanced. The other ones are in development, working with you know big unis and, and things like that. Uh, cool. And yeah. all just purely and squarely focused on us. Yeah. So, and one thing I've, I've really liked what we did from the word go, it did not matter whether you were serving or a veteran. Yeah. Yeah. So, I know there's other, you know... Um, People that sort of, okay, the veterans have come into it and then partners have come into it. From the day dot, we've always been members, veterans, their families. Yep. Because to us and to me, it's, we've got a member who's mentally injured. If we can look after the people around that member, mm-hmm. then it creates a nice little safety bubble around them, which yeah. then allows them, which will help promote their recovery, help get their health better, which then helps everyone. Mm. For the people that don't know, could you just let everyone know um, if they are in a position where they might need Code 9, how can they join up? So we also run two private Facebook groups, one for partners and one for members. So if you've ever been a first responder but you're a partner, you'll go into the members group. Mm -hmm. So only the partners that have never been first responders are in that partners group. Mm-hmm. So it's peer support at its finest, basically. Um, so if you want to get onto that, just send me an email or jump onto our Facebook page, mm-hmm. um, Code9PTSD, Facebook yep. slash Code9PTSD, or mm-hmm. um, our webpage, Code9PTSD.org.au. Send us an email, send us a message through Facebook. Um, or, yeah, track us yeah. down and send well, a message. And we can put all the links to that yeah. um, in the show notes. So. That'd be great. And yeah. then what we do, though, we do ask for proof that you are who you say you are. Yeah. And that's Fair. that's by no means no disrespect whatsoever, mm. but it's just only people who fit the criteria in there can be in there. We've had a few people try and yeah. sneak in, so to speak, over the, over the journey and that... We don't want that. We're very, very protective of our crews in there where it's, you know, yeah. people are putting up there, you know, I'm having a bad day. And then you see all these people start messaging and mm. um, commenting, yeah, I am too. We'll get through this together. And you just sort of, that's really cool. Mm. Yeah, a sense of camaraderie is back. We, we don't allow any negativity, mm. um, much to the, I've copped a little bit of flack for that stance um, over the years. And but we're still trying to, figure out that as well. Yeah. The line between censorship and... But you know what, that's... I'm just so powerful on positivity. Yeah. And like if you if you, if you post you're having a bad day or feeling really low, no one's going to pop in and say, just think happy thoughts. 
No. But it's, okay, let's try and be positive about this. Let's try and find something out of it. Mm. I'm not saying you have to be, but let's just try and put a little protective bubble around and give some good encouragement or here's an app that I use, things like that, just to try and help that member. And conversely, we do that with the partners as well, although a lot of theirs is they sit there and they bounce off each other as Mm. to, you know, living with someone with PTSD is not easy. No. So they're getting the support from other people that have been through it. So there's a, another partner, we got her in during the week and straight away she's asking, well, what do I do here? What do I do there? And you've got these other partners jumping in. Well, this is what I do. This is what I do. Mm. I did this. It didn't work. So I did this. So it's really good, mm. really good communities for both of them. Yeah. I'm really excited to see that grow as well, especially with the overlap with PBB and yeah. what we're all doing, yeah. um, you know, to, to get this to get the word out, really. Um, yeah, the word community is really good. Because yeah. Of, like, I remember speaking to Dave at a, a Veterans Forum we had up at Wayne or Shep? Somewhere Shepparton, like that. Shepparton, yeah. yeah. And he, he's talking really powerful about creating that community. Mm-hmm. And, yes, it is really important for us to have social contacts that are non-coppers. So we, our friends that have never been a first responder, so we can get that sort of normality... But it's, you know what, sometimes we just want to sit with our own people. Yeah. Um, as I say at the start, we are we are different people mm-hmm. from the rest of society. So with Dave, PBV, yourself, putting this out there that you want to create this community, we want every, you know, every veteran in Victoria, well, every veteran anywhere around the world is a veteran Victoria police to be in this community, to... You know, make those connections and meet up with someone that you worked with 35 years ago and mm. have a good laugh and smile and yeah. grab a palmer and have a chat. I mean, yeah. it's all really good, healthy stuff. Yeah. Oh, and we'll get there. And I'm, yeah. I'm really excited to, to see what, what that's going to look like. Mm. So as we mentioned, just for everyone that's listening, um, I will put it in the show notes um, how you can access Code 9 if you do need it. This was a really lovely conversation, Mark. Thanks for coming on the plot. You're welcome. Um, Thanks for having me. I feel, yeah, <laughs> um, I feel pretty blessed actually. Very, very humble in that you've. It's yeah. a police veterans Victoria, and I'm not a veteran, so I. You know, yeah. It's quite humbling to sit here with you, and um, I love what you're doing, and you know I'm really looking forward to watching PVV grow, and do me some too. pretty awesome stuff. Yeah. It's going to be great because. You know, to go on what I was saying, I don't like X. You, once you're blue, you're always blue. And some of the stories, you know, like I'm mates with Mick Cummins, who's just a, mm. done a power of work in this um, this um, atmosphere, this area, whatever the word, proper word words are. And mm. some of the stories, you know, it's just it's just not acceptable what is happening to some of our veterans. No. We cannot allow it to happen. And we'll to the best that. of our abilities, we need to. We need to be better, everyone. Yeah. Those are good parting words, I think. Cool. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Police Veterans Victoria, or head over to our website, www.policeveteransvic.org.au. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.